This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated PG for some violence. Nil Desperandum 33 No Such Thing as Private Eyes by Mark Coggins Hello again, everyone. Thank you again for listening, whether you're on the No Agenda stream or podcast download. For those of you who are listening to the podcast download, you will find a special bonus in this issue. That is the full, uncut interview I had with Mark Coggins. Uh, if you've listened to The Book Guys a few weeks ago, you've heard an edited version of that. Uh, for those of you listening on the No Agenda stream, if you want to hear that interview in full, please visit ndstories.com, find issue number 33, and download the episode. Mark Coggins is the author of the August Reardon series of novels which I strongly recommend you check out. You can find him online at markcoggins.com. So with that, we'll get right into our main fiction. There's No Such Thing as Private Eyes, by Mark Coggins. Delbert Evans was cheap. Cheap with his time, cheap with his money, cheap with everything. It didn't do you any good to tell him, though, because he liked being that way. I was sitting at a table at the cheap bar we had agreed upon when he came up, thirty minutes late. Delbert sold insurance. I don't know how, but he did. I guess people bought it because they felt sorry for Delbert when they got their first look at him. His head was wedge-shaped, almost all profiles. His nose was a full-scale copy of Edison's first light bulb, and his eyes were close-set and slightly crossed. The rest of him wasn't much better. He had a stick body that his sear suits never fit, and feet so long a cow gave up its life every time he went to buy shoes. Delbert made a nervous gesture I took for a wave, bumped to the table sitting down, and said, Excuse me for being late, August. I got caught on the phone with a very important call, and I didn't leave my office until just a few minutes ago. I laughed like I didn't believe him. Okay, Del, why did you call me down here? Delbert smiled and capped teeth shone behind his thick lips. You private investigators are always in a hurry, he complained. Couldn't you allow me time to order a drink before we get down to business? I said that I could. Delbert signaled a waitress and ordered one of those sweet, candied drinks people are always inventing nowadays. I asked for another scotch. Here's the proposition, Delbert said after the waitress had gone. We want you to investigate the theft of an expensive diamond pendant that was insured by our company. We are prepared to offer you ten percent of its insured value if you recover it. Otherwise, we will reimburse you at the rate of one hundred dollars a day, plus expenses for the time you spend on the investigation. That was unusual. Insurance companies rarely offered to pay a daily rate for recovery investigations. I said, What's the catch, Dell? I know you guys don't work that way. Delbert's face became flushed. Yes, well, the pendant is worth over five hundred thousand dollars. 
so naturally the insurance company is very concerned about recovering it for our client. We are offering you the rate of $100 a day even if you don't recover the pendant to ensure that you will be motivated. I still wasn't buying. Delbert was too cheap to offer more money than he had to. I rode him some with my stare. Of course, Delbert sputtered on. If it should turn out that the pendant has not been stolen at all, that our client still has it, then you could not really claim to have recovered it. And I wouldn't be entitled to the 10% fee, right? I get it now. You guys think your client has faked the robbery to get a hold of the insurance money and still keep the pendant. But it's cheaper to hire me at $100 a day to prove it than to pay me 50 grand. Ah, uh, yes, something like that, said Delbert. Will you take the case? Normally I didn't like insurance jobs, but my bank balance was so low it would fit under a lizard. I said, okay, make it 125 and give me the details. Delbert smiled with relief. $125 it is, August. Our client's name is Pamela Dyer. She is the widow of a wealthy real estate developer. The pendant was stolen a week ago from the apartment of a friend of hers, Robert Gray. Mrs. Dyer and Gray had gone to the apartment after eating dinner in a restaurant. Shortly after they arrived, two men with guns burst through the door and demanded they turn over all the valuables on their person. The men had stockings over their faces. Gray lost a gold watch and a hundred dollars in cash. Mrs. Dyer lost two diamond rings and the pendant. The gunman tied up Mrs. Dyer and Gray before they left and pulled out the phone for good measure. Gray said he managed to free himself after an hour of struggling, and then he released Mrs. Dyer and went to a neighbor's apartment to phone the police. The waitress came up with our drinks and scurried off. I took a few sips from mine before I said anything. Finally, I can see why you would think the robbery was a fake, Dell. The gunman knowing Mrs. Dyer would be in Gray's apartment with the pendant at that particular time does seem unlikely. But they could have spotted the pendant in the restaurant, and then followed Gray and Dyer home to make the heist. Delbert looked disappointed. Do you really think so? he asked. No, I'm not sure. I just wanted to show you that there were two ways of looking at it. Do you know what the police think about the robbery? They seem altogether satisfied that Mrs. Dyer and Gray are telling the truth. However, they don't seem to be doing much in the way of investigation. That's why we're hiring you. I nodded in sympathetic agreement, and pumped Delbert for a few more details, like the addresses of Robert Gray and Mrs. Dyer. We finished our drinks then, and I left Delbert in the bar to do whatever it is insurance salesmen do by themselves in bars. This was Phoenix in the summertime, and it was hot. I drove in my Ford Galaxy with all four windows down because the air conditioner had given out two summers ago. I was heading up Central Avenue from the bar downtown to see Pamela Dyer's boyfriend, Robert Gray. Gray was a big-wheel lawyer in Phoenix, and the firm he worked for had its offices in the posh Weckler building on Highland. When I came to Highland, I turned left off Central and drove a block or so until I reached the underground garage that served the cluster of office buildings in the vicinity. I parked in a cramped space on the third level, rode the elevator back upstairs, and crossed the street to the Weckler building. The Ringling brothers could have fit their circus in the lobby, elephants and all. Right then it was populated by flashy, overweight business types who still wore their three-piece suits, even though it was a 105 degrees outside. I walked to the elevators, losing sight of my feet a number of times in the marshland of wool they used for carpet. 
at the directory. I checked the number to Gray's office, and then I caught a ride on an ascending elevator to the fifth floor. Gray's office was a short way down the hall on the right. Inside, I found a cute secretary making noise with an electric typewriter. She had long blonde hair and a deeply tanned oval face. She wore a cream pantsuit over a figure that was enough to make an accountant snap all his pencils. I introduced myself by giving her one of the smudged business cards I carried around in my wallet and asked if I might see Mr. Gray about the theft of Mrs. Dyer's pendant. She walked distractedly back to a dark-grained wooden door, knocked lightly, went in. When she returned, I was told Mr. Gray would allow me ten minutes of his time. Gray was a fat man, but it didn't seem to bother him. He waltzed around his desk to greet me like someone who weighed seventy pounds less. The grip he clamped on my hand was very firm. The light brown hair on his head was beginning to thin out, and he had a pleasant face that would have been handsome, except for his extra chins. He wore a lightweight powder blue suit. After we exchanged pleasantries and sat down, I said, Mr. Gray, I've been hired by the insurance company to investigate the theft of Mrs. Dyer's pendant, and I was wondering if you could give me some information about it. Gray smiled faintly and formed a bridge with his hands. You must realize that I have already given all the information I know about the theft to the police, Mr. Reardon. There is no need for anyone to question me further. I think the insurance company is stalling, and you are merely part of that stall. How much longer will Pamela have to wait before they give her the money she is entitled to? Ask them. They think you two faked the robbery, I said, just to rattle him. Gray looked about as rattled as a granite headstone. He frowned and pushed his real chin down into the other ones. You can't be serious. Mrs. Dyer and I were robbed and tied up in my apartment by two very real thugs. There was no duplicity involved. What did the men look like? They wore stockings over their faces. So I've been told. But can you describe the rest of them? They were both moderately tall with strong builds, and they both wore Levi's and T-shirts. I can't tell you anything more. Okay, I said. Did you notice anyone like them following you from the restaurant after dinner? No, I did not. Of course, I wasn't really looking. How often did Mrs. Dyer wear her pendant? Gray let out a big, long sigh like he was tired of talking about the whole thing. She wore it occasionally, he said. She did not wear it all the time like some women do with expensive jewelry. Pamela has always had very good taste. Yeah, in some things. Gray's face reddened. What is that supposed to mean, Reardon? I forgot. When was the... Gray cut me off. He said, I don't care to discuss this any further. If you want more information, then go ask the police. Perhaps they have time to waste with cretins. Lots. They talked to you, didn't they? I was a real friendly guy that afternoon. I got up and went through the door. Gray's secretary was still typing in the outer office. She looked up from her work and addressed me in a cheery tone. Did you get what you came for? Yeah, I said. I got what I came for. But now that I'm here, I see something else I might like, too. I smiled a cute smile and waited for her to catch on. I didn't wait much. You can't always get what you want. Bye-bye, Mr. Reardon. I laughed a little. Winked at her. Went out the door.
My office would never win any awards for interior decoration, or anything else for that matter. I leased it out of a building that used to be a profitable hotel, until the neighborhood ran down and they turned it into an office building for seedy businessmen like myself. There were a few seedy dentists in the building, too. Anyway, my office still looked like a hotel room with a small bedroom off the hallway door, and an even smaller bathroom adjoining it. I'd filled the bedroom with a second-hand sofa that was also a fold-away bed, an elementary school teacher's desk I'd bought at a sale when the school burned down, a file cabinet I got from the same school, and two chairs, one for myself and one for my client. The bathroom I'd filled with a lot of air. I was lying flat out on the sofa, holding a glass of whiskey on the middle of my stomach. I had eaten dinner in my apartment and come back here to think. The most conclusive decision I'd come to since lying there was that the ceiling was dirty. The second most conclusive decision I'd reached was that I should call Pamela Dyer. I moved to the desk to carry it out. I rang her number a long time before the maid answered. I identified myself and asked to speak to Mrs. Dyer. A few seconds later, she came on. Hello, Mr. Reardon. Robert said that you might try to contact me. I don't believe I have anything to say to you, though. Her voice was hard and distant. Don't you want to recover your pendant? Yes, of course. But I've been answering questions for a week now, and still I don't have it back. Answering questions doesn't seem to do any good, Mr. Reardon. Let's try some of mine anyway. Can you describe the pendant for me? There was a short pause. Oh, very well, she said. The pendant is made of gold and is shaped like a heart, or the outline of a heart. It's strung on a fine chain, which is also made of gold. There are blue diamonds inlaid along the circumference. The diamond at the top cusp is larger than the others, and is of unusually fine quality. That diamond is what makes the pendant so valuable. It's one of the largest blue diamonds in the world. Oh, I said. It sounded pretty gaudy to me. Maybe Mrs. Dyer didn't have good taste in anything. How did you acquire the pendant? My late husband gave it to me for our tenth anniversary. How long ago was that? None of your business, she snapped. Right, but how long ago was it? She made a snarling sound. I hardly recognized her voice as she barked, Go fry your face in a pan, Reardon! Then she hung up. My mouth fell open like it usually does. Nothing in there but teeth and stale air. I was really pumping them dry. No scrap of information escaped Detective Reardon. He knows all the right questions and all the right ways to ask them. I wheeled back in my chair to the filing cabinet and opened the drawer with the only thing important in it to get a bottle of whiskey. I filled my glass with an inch or so of the stuff and drank it down. It wasn't very good, but I took my medicine and liked it. I was going to see Mrs. Dyer in person, and I needed all the help I could get. She lived in a ritzy section of North Phoenix. I didn't have any trouble locating the house because it was as big as a barn, and only a bit more handsome. It was lit up like some kind of government building with floodlights that shone up from the ground. I pulled into the circle drive and parked my dusty Ford behind a shiny new Mercedes. At least my car was in good company. I knew I wouldn't be with Pamela Dyer. I crossed to the front door and banged on it with the ornate knocker that hung there. After a while, the porch light came on, and a tall woman in a black crepe dress answered the door. She was forty or so, big-boned and rugged-looking. Her hair, black as her dress, was wound tightly in a severe bun many years out of style. She looked me over slowly and with an expression most people save for child molesters and Bolsheviks. It had to be Pamela Dyer. Who are you? she asked sternly. Reardon, I said. August Reardon. You're the private investigator who called then? Yeah. 
Her eyes burned greenly. Come in, she said, and led me into a large sunken living room. I looked around. The room was a fine illustration of what a lot of money and no taste can accomplish. Antique furniture from twelve different periods cluttered it. Expensive-looking pictures hung on all four walls at irregular intervals, and a large Persian rug lay in the middle of the floor on top of the regular carpet. There was also a tall man with a big gun in the far right corner. I said, Is that your maid, Mrs. Dyer? The man began laughing like a sick horse and walked into the middle of the room, pointing his Colt Army forty-five at me. That's right, smart guy, he said. I'm the maid, and I'm here to do a little house-cleaning. Check him for a gun, Pammy. There wasn't anywhere to check except my belt line, because I didn't have a jacket on, just short sleeves. I don't carry a gun unless I think I'll need it, and I didn't think that night. Mrs. Dyer patted my waistline anyway, about as firmly as you'd caress a hot stove. She stepped back when she was finished, and the tall guy with the gun came up and dug it into my stomach. His big red face was pitted with acne scars, and his breath smelled of liquor, but so did mine. He said, Pammy doesn't like smart guy private detectives tracking their gumshoe prints all over her neat little house, so she called me to help her clean up. What do you think of that, smart guy? It's fine, if she wants to fumigate after you leave. He didn't like that one, and he told me so by swinging the flat of the forty-five into my left cheek, hard. I staggered back, but didn't fall. I got mad then and decided to take my chances. Pockface had the gun pointed to the side because of the follow-through on his swing. I lunged toward his gun arm, bringing my knee up to his groin as I came forward. A half-second later we both hit the ground and he lost his grip on the forty-five. I slugged him once in the jaw and struggled across the Persian rug to reach the gun. I would have made it, too, if Pamela Dyer hadn't hit me in the back of the head with one of her antique chairs. My arms buckled under me then, and I began to lose consciousness. The last thing I remembered was Pockface kicking me in the ribs. It's funny, but I hardly felt it at all. The sun peeped through a crack in some expensive curtains, and a wonderful day began outside. It felt like throwing up. I was lying face down on the Persian rug in Mrs. Dyer's sunken living room. Beside me lay the remains of what had once been an Italian antique chair. Or maybe it was French. I'm not an expert. I knew without checking that the back of my head was missing. I checked anyway, and found a matted patch of bloody hair on a bump big enough to convince me that my head was reproducing by fission. As for my ribs... I decided it would be less painful if I just stopped breathing. The sun had moved several degrees higher in the sky before I forced myself to consider getting up. I glanced at my watch. It was 7.30. If I didn't get up soon, the real maid would come along and vacuum me off the rug. I struggled to my feet and surveyed the room from an upright position. There was no one in it. I checked the rest of the rooms and didn't find anyone else. None of the beds had been slept in. I went into the kitchen and put some ice in a baggie for the back of my head. I found the front door then and walked to my car. The sun was so bright outside that for a full five minutes I couldn't do anything but stand by my car squinting, holding the ice to the back of my head. As I stood there, I heard the morning traffic on a main street about a quarter mile away. 
Slowly my eyes adjusted to the stark light, and I could see normally again. I did not like what I saw. Pamela Dyer lay hunched up in the back seat of my car, looking dead. I jerked the door open and felt for a pulse. There wasn't any. Her black hair had fallen from the tight bun and settled around her shoulders in coarse, tangled strands. It gave her a frivolous kind of appearance I wouldn't have thought possible. Her neck above the crepe dress was botched with dark bruises. She had been strangled. The body was stiff and cold, growing stiffer and colder. I went around to the trunk of the car and got out an old blanket I kept there. I wrapped her carefully in the blanket, placed the body inside the trunk, closed it. My ribs were smarting the whole time. I eased myself into the car and pulled out of the driveway. As I left, I noticed the Mercedes from last night was missing. I didn't know where I was going. I was just getting away from there. I ended up at a small city park at the northern edge of Phoenix. I drove up to one of the covered picnic tables they call Ramadas and parked the car. When I was sure no one was around, I opened the trunk and hefted Pamela Dyer's body onto the picnic table. It was a gruesome job. I got in my car again and aimed it towards an open coffee shop. I went first to the bathroom to wash my face. There was a large bruise on my left cheek, and the skin was broken. I had almost forgotten about it with all the other rough stuff that had happened to me. I bent my head over the sink and tried to wash out some of the dried blood that was caked in my hair. I patted my hair dry with a paper towel, then went out to get some breakfast. The waitress thought I'd been run over by a truck, and she told me so. I ordered a lot, not because I was hungry, but because I needed food, and began scanning a morning paper someone had left behind. I half expected to see a headline reading, Private Investigator Strangles Woman and Hides Body in Park. It wasn't there, however. The food came and I ate it. It didn't taste very good, but I felt less lightheaded with something in my stomach. After I finished, I went back to a payphone and dialed the police department to tell them they would find the body of a dead woman at the park. It would take them several days to identify the body, especially if the media didn't pick up on it. I needed those days to figure out the mess and clear myself against the time someone finally reported Mrs. Dyer missing. I got into the car one last time and drove to Delbert Evans' office. I had to talk to someone. When I got to Delbert's office, no one was there but Delbert. It was 8.50. I found him rummaging around the secretary's desk looking for a paperclip. He greeted me with a grimace and told me I looked like I had been run over by a truck. I guess waitresses and insurance salesmen think the same. We went into the inner office and sat down. Delbert put on a brave, expectant face and said, Well, August, how is the investigation going? Mrs. Dyer is dead. Delbert jerked like he'd been shocked at digging his bread out of the toaster with a fork. His face turned two shades whiter. How did it happen? he asked breathlessly. I told him the whole wad, starting with my visit to Gray's office and ending with the disposal of Mrs. Dyer's body. He sank lower and lower in his chair as I told the story, and by the time I was finished, his chest was at the same level as the desktop. August, he said, and pulled himself up. We hired you to find the pendant. Not to antagonize Mr. Gray and Mrs. Dyer, and certainly not to have Mrs. Dyer killed. 
That wasn't quite straight, but I let it slide. And frankly, Delbert continued, I don't think it was very wise of you to remove Mrs. Dyer from the premises. You've just made it that much more difficult for the police to solve the murder and clear you. Be serious, Del. If I had called the police from the house when I found the body, clearing me would have been the last thing on their minds. I would be their number one suspect. As it stands now, I'll still be the guy they go after when they identify the body. The maid who works at the house knows I talked to Mrs. Dyer last night because she answered the phone. She might have even been at the house when I got caught. I don't know. But what about the man with the gun? Wouldn't the police suspect him? They would if they'd believe what I told them. The cops would as soon listen to winos in the street as private investigators. What are you going to do then, August? Go on with the investigation. Mrs. Dyer's death and the theft of the pendant must be related. I don't know exactly where the gun boy at the house fits in, but he's got to be the link between the two. It's clear Mrs. Dyer wasn't telling us the whole story. Delbert started to ramble on the way he did whenever he got excited. Chiefly, he was concerned that I'd be more careful and not involve myself or the insurance company in any more murders. I couldn't argue with that. I tried to calm him down anyway, and I spent another fifteen minutes or so talking with him about his golf game. I wouldn't know a five-iron if he hit me over the head with it, but I faked it. I left after scrounging the first name of Mrs. Dyer's maid from Delbert. That was all he knew, and went home to my apartment. There I licked my wounds and helped recycle aluminum by drinking a few beers. The name of Vita and a ten-dollar bribe were all the clerk at Valley Domestic Service needed to supply me with the full name and address of Mrs. Dyer's maid. Her full name was Evita Salais, and she lived on East Roosevelt in a very bad neighborhood. In fact, she lived about three blocks south of my office. The house was a gray stucco number built around 1803. The lawn surrounding it had been planted in the same year, but wasn't around now to tell the tale. Two yellowish bedsheets hung from a rusty clothesline in the side yard, providing the only shade for the whole place. A maroon Packard stood decaying nearby. I went up a cracked sidewalk to the porch and knocked at the screen door. The Roman Empire rose and fell in the time it took someone to answer the door. The someone was a dark woman in a white slip and nylon pantyhose. Her breasts were round and obscenely full, her thighs big and muscular. She smiled at me and tilted her hips at an insolent angle. She looked about as hard to get as the time of day. Miss Evita Soleil's, I asked. Yes, she said huskily. That's me. May I come in? I'd like to talk to you about one of the people you work for. No, you cannot come in, she said, and effectively blocked my way with her chest. Who are you? I tried to look past her into the house, but the room was too dark. My name is August Reardon, I said in something like an official tone. I'm the insurance investigator assigned to Mrs. Dyer's case. Did you work at her home yesterday? Yes, I work for Mrs. Dyer Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Hey, wait a minute. You're the private detective that called yesterday evening, aren't you? I heard Mrs. Dyer talking to you on the phone, and she was not pleased. I shouldn't be talking to you. She moved to go back inside. Just a second, I said, and grabbed her bare arm. I just have a few questions to ask, and I don't think they'll be that painful to answer. 
and pulled another ten dollars from my pocket. She thought about the money for a second. Okay, she said. What is it you want to know? When did you leave Mrs. Dyer's house last night? I left after cleaning up the mess from dinner. Mrs. Dyer always has me clean up after dinner. Did Mrs. Dyer have any visitors yesterday? No, no visitors. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. I answer the door myself when she has visitors. Have you ever seen a tall, red-faced man at the house? Someone moved in the dark room behind her. No, she said. I've never seen a short, blue-faced one, either. Can I have my money now? I've got things to do. I handed her the money just as a bumping noise sounded in the room. She glanced quickly behind her, pivoted, and went through the door. She locked it after her. There was nothing else to do but go back to my car and pull down the block to wait. At least I could tell anyone who left. The flask from my glove box was half empty by the time her scream rang out. I hesitated only an instant before running up the street like an idiot. The house door was still locked, but the lock was cheap and it didn't last long. I pushed through to the front room and nearly tripped over her where she lay face down by the door. She looked as healthy as I'd left her, until I turned her over. The face I saw then was not the face I remembered. Her forehead was caved in like a squashed melon, thick blood and gray mash oozing from the wound. I moved to feel her pulse, doubting she had one. I should have been smarter. I should have realized that someone I saw moving in the dark room before would still be around after he crushed her skull. I should have known. A vague figure on the edge of my vision moved toward me. It swung, brought down something hard between my shoulder blades. A painful buzzing like a swarm of bees shot at my neck and nestled in my brain. I never quite lost consciousness. Might as well have. Darkness and the floor beneath me were all I knew. The next minutes were long ones. I heard a lot of noises, but I couldn't distinguish any of them until I heard the sirens. The sirens were what forced me to move. Someone, probably the person who'd hit me, had called the police. I pried myself from the floor, finding Evita Salaez's legs under me. Nearby was my candidate for the weapon that had clubbed us both, a rolling pin. It was sticky with flour and gelled blood. The front door seemed like a dumb move, so I fumbled to my feet and made for the back door. I passed through the kitchen on my way and noticed a mound of dough waiting to be rolled out. It never was. The back door opened to an alley that ran behind the houses on my side of the block. I crept along as stealthily as my new injury would allow, until I came to a gap in the alley close to my car. I walked over casually and drove. I drove past the screeching police car stopping in front of Evita Salaz's house, and kept on driving straight to the Weckler building. I was tired of getting beat up, and I was tired of falling over dead bodies wherever I went. I decided it was time to see Robert Gray again, and really put the heat on for some useful answers. I stuck my head through the office door and caught sight of his secretary. She was still at the desk typing, as if she spent the whole night there. Today, however, she was wearing a pastel summer dress. I said, Hi, Angel. Remember me? Sure, she said. How could I forget a handsome hunk like you? But ouch, what happened to your cheek? I stepped inside. One of my playmates from last night got a little rough. I'll survive. You always would, but I'd hate to meet any of your playmates. I don't see why. Any friend of mine is a friend of yours. She flipped her hair back casually and gave me a big smile. I already have enough friends, thank you. You always would. Do you think I could get in to see your employer? I'll see what I can do. Some minutes later I found myself in Robert Gray's private office, sitting in the same chair as yesterday. Gray hadn't lost any weight in twenty-four hours, but he had changed clothes. He wore a beige suit, 
What can I do for you today, Mr. Reardon? He asked coolly. Have you come to exchange insults again? No, but I'm surprised you agreed to see me. I wouldn't have, but it seems it is the only way to motivate the insurance company to pay Pamela's claim. I got mean. You needn't worry about that any more. Mrs. Dyer is dead. That's preposterous. No, it's quite true, I said with false calm. She was strangled to death by someone with large hands. Large hands like yours, maybe. Gray looked down at his hands on the desk, and then jerked them into his lap. His face reddened. What is this, young man? Some kind of macabre joke? Yeah, I'm joking. I'm also joking when I tell you Dyer's maid got her face smashed by a rolling pin. It's all something I made up. And don't call me young, because I'm not. Gray narrowed his eyes to slits and gave me what he thought was a serious-looking stare. Look, Reardon, he said, I'm tired of playing this idiotic game with you. You've come into my office twice in two days, and each time you have accused me of some crime. Yesterday it was insurance fraud. Today it is murder. I don't like being treated in this manner, especially by low-brow private investigators. Why don't you leave before I am forced to throw you out? I leaned over the desk and laughed in his face. All right, Gray. I'll leave if you don't like it. But I hope you learn how to deal with things you don't like soon. Because when I figure out this case, believe me, I will. You are going to like it a lot less. Gray clamped his jaw shut and the muscles on the side of his fleshy face twitched. I got up out of the chair and went through the door into the outer office. It had been a short meeting. The secretary wasn't in her office, so I walked straight out the next door and down the hall to the elevators. The hand I pressed the elevator button with was shaking. I waited a time for a car to stop on the floor, and then all three showed up at once. I got into the closest one with an old guy dressed in a suit fifteen years out of style. During the ride to the lobby, he generously revealed his secret for making a million dollars. I thanked him in a tongue-in-cheek way and walked out of the building to my car. I learned three months later that he was Mr. Weckler, the owner of the Weckler building, and a guy worth about four million. But by that time, I had forgotten the secret. I drove back to my old office building and went in. In the lobby, I bought an early edition of the afternoon paper from one of the machines and carried it back to my office. When I got good and settled behind my desk with some whiskey, I went through the paper looking for articles on Mrs. Dyer's death. I scanned the front section and saw nothing. But in one of the back sections, I located a small article telling how the police had found the body of an unidentified woman in a city park. They gave a short description of the deceased and asked for the public's cooperation in identifying her. I hoped they wouldn't get it. I was very tired and my head ached. I downed another three pony glasses of whiskey for the pain and for the frustration. But it didn't make me any less tired. I began to look through the rest of the paper just to have something to do. When I got bored, I walked over to the sofa and lay down. That fairy tale is right. It is very pleasant to be wakened by a kiss. Her lips were cool and moist, her hair perfumed. That's the last time I wake a sleeping beauty, she said, 
It smells like you've been sleeping with a bottle. I opened my eyes and found Robert Gray's secretary standing over me. She was as pretty as ever, but her hair had been messed by the wind. I said, no, you just smell my French cologne. I think Scotch cologne would be more exact, but I'm not one to argue. Tell me, why are you sleeping on the job anyway? Aren't you afraid some of your friends will come up here and do you in while you snooze? They could, it's true, but none of them hate me enough to come to this part of town to do it. I think you have a point there. Then what are you doing here, and how did you find my office? You sure ask a lot of questions. That's my job, when I'm not sleeping. She motioned with her hand for me to scoot over, and sat down next to me on the sofa. Well, if you ever make enough money at your job to buy a new couch, I suggest you do it. This one is terrible. Anyway, I got your address from that dog-eared business card you gave me yesterday, and I came here to help you, believe it or not. I heard you and Mr. Gray yelling at each other today before I went on my break, so I figured you didn't get too far with him. I might be able to tell you a few things you didn't know. I looked into her eyes and smiled. They were light blue and mischievous-looking. I had a feeling she was the type of person who never took anything too seriously. I said, I'm sure you could tell me a lot of things I don't know, but why would you want to? Aren't you supposed to be loyal to Mr. Gray? He doesn't like anything told to low-brow private investigators like me. My loyalty stops when my employment does. I don't work for Mr. Gray anymore. He got angry with me for typing a letter wrong, so he called the secretary service I work for to get a new girl. You see, I was only a temporary replacement while his regular secretary was on vacation. So your motive is revenge? No. I typed the letter wrong on purpose because I was tired of working there. I only take those jobs from the temporary service when I'm not modeling. Modeling is my main source of income. I can believe that. You still haven't told me why you drove all the way out here, though. A person sure has to go through a lot just to give you a little help, she said. But I'll tell you anyway. I came out here because I like you, and because I wanted to see a real private eye in action. I winced. There's no such thing as private eyes. Not anymore, at least. They went out with big-time gangsters and bogey movies. The only people left in the business are the big boys with the electronic spy equipment and the little operators like me. I'm doing well if I gross a thousand bucks a month and the jobs I get always leftovers. This isn't a glamorous profession, and you can't make it that way by calling me a private eye. If you call me anything, please call me a private investigator. She smiled. Okay, Mr. Private Investigator, I came to see you in action. What exciting things have you done today besides sleeping? Nothing from my little speech had sunk in. She still expected me to talk out of the side of my mouth and show her the real brass knuckles I used to beat up criminals. I sighed. No, not much. I did dispose of a body I found in the back seat of my car. And, of course, it's always exciting to sit with you on the same sofa. You're not making a comparison between the two events, I hope. Never. Now tell me what I'm supposed to call you. I don't know your name. It's Lynn Morrow. I know yours is August from your card. All right, Lynn. Let's go somewhere we can talk, and maybe eat something decent at the same time. We ate dinner at a nice restaurant, and went back to her apartment where I stole a few kisses. Much of the stuff she told me about Gray was useless. In her effort to play private eye with me, she blew the normal events of the office out of proportion. But there was one thing I found interesting. A tall man with a red, acne-scarred face had come to Gray's office after I'd left. He'd argued with Gray for a while and then stormed out of the office, promising loudly that he would come to see Gray again this evening. Finally, something was clicking. 
I decided Gray and Pockface would have one more person at their meeting. Me. I parked my crate outside Gray's apartment building and went up the walk to the lobby entrance. The door was locked. It was on one of those intercom systems where you buzz up to the apartment to be let in. I punched about six of the room buttons and said, It's me, honey, I forgot my key, into the speaker as they answered. I got in on the fourth try. Gray's apartment number, I knew from Delbert, was 312. I rode the elevator to the third floor and stepped out into a hallway that was as quiet as a sneak thief in the Duchess's bedroom. I found the apartment on the right side and put my ear to it. I heard nothing. I reached for the doorknob, turned it slowly. The knob twisted sharply in my hand. Somebody pulled the door open and my arm went with it. Too bad for you, Reardon, said a voice. There was a swishing noise then, and I felt something burn hard at my left temple. Points of light blazed like welding sparks in front of my eyes. The floor reached up to grab me. It was a man. He was saying something in my face, but I wasn't listening. He was tall, or he seemed to be at the angle from which I viewed him. He had black, greasy hair and sideburns that were much too long. He smoked a huge cigar and looked like a smoldering road flare. It made me nauseous. His fat belly was like nine pounds of stuff in a five-pound bag. Presently, he laughed at me and showed off a set of teeth that could have made a poor orthodontist very happy. I blinked my eyes with pain and concentrated on coming back to life. I was lying on a sofa in the middle of a dark-paneled room. Dark pieces of matching furniture were scattered about the room on top of a dark brown carpet. Everything was dark. There were three men in the room, and at least one gun. "'This bird ain't too smart, is he, Mr. Mendoza?' Pockface said to the man with the cigar. Pockface gestured with his gun where he stood by the door, facing me. "'He drives up to the apartment building and parks his car right underneath our window.' Then he comes up to the apartment and expects to walk right in. Only thing is, he takes three weeks opening the door, and we have plenty of time to bash him in the head with a sap. You'd think he'd learn something getting bashed in the head all the time like he does. Yeah, you would, Eddie, said Mr. Mendoza. Just like you'd think fat Mr. Gray over here would learn that it's not a good idea to back out of any deals he makes with me. Mendoza nodded at Robert Gray, who stood by the foot of the couch looking as white as a sheet from an operating table. Do you think you know what I'm talking about, Seamus? Mendoza said to me. I struggled to sit up. Yeah, I said. You helped Gray and Pamela Dyer fake the theft of the pendant so you could fence it. You would get part of the money from the pendant for your trouble, and they would get the rest plus the insurance money. But they never came across with the pendant, so you're upset. That's close, Seamus. You're smarter than I thought you were, said Mendoza. You're right about everything except the part about Gray and Dyer not coming across with the pendant. That's not right. Mr. Gray, give us the pendant tonight. Look. Mendoza reached into his breast pocket and pulled out a gold heart-shaped pendant on a fine chain. He dangled it in front of my face. It was exactly as Mrs. Dyer had described it, except there wasn't a large diamond at the top cleft, just a large hole. So you see, 
Mendoza went on. I'm not upset because they didn't give me the pendant. I'm upset because they didn't give me all of the pendant. Without the big rock, it's not even worth twenty grand. Small change. And I don't deal for small change. Robert Gray made a noise in his throat. His eyes became wide, and he looked at Mendoza with a pleading expression. He said, But Mr. Mendoza, I've already told you what happened to the large diamond. Pamela kept it. I told her you would be angry, but she wouldn't listen to reason. You must go and talk to her if you want the diamond. I started laughing. My laughter filled the dark room with a strange sound. Three dumb faces stared at me. Stop it, ordered Mendoza. I didn't. Mendoza jerked his head at Eddie, who came up from the door. Eddie switched his gun to his left hand and hit me in the mouth with his right. I tasted blood immediately, and my laughing stopped. Then I laughed some more. Again, said Mendoza. Eddie took a good swing this time and knocked me prone onto the couch. Blood flowed into my mouth. What's so funny, Seamus? Mendoza asked. I looked up at Mendoza and felt cold hatred. You should know, I said through thick, numb lips. Ask your gun boy about last night. Mendoza looked over at Eddie, but Eddie just shook his head. Make it plain, Reardon, said Mendoza. Pamela Dyer is dead, I said for the third time today. Eddie strangled her after they knocked me out. Then he dumped her in the back seat of my car where I found her this morning. Eddie shook his head furiously. No, Mr. Mendoza, I didn't do anything like that. When I left the house last night, Mrs. Dyer was plenty alive. I sat upright again and looked over at Gray. He was as nervous as a squirrel. Sorry, Eddie, my mistake, I said. You didn't kill Pamela Dyer. Gray did. I joked about it when I went to see him this afternoon. Now I see I was right. He must have come to the house after you left to pressure Mrs. Dyer into turning over the pendant. I turned to Mendoza. That was the same reason you sent Eddie over there for, wasn't it? Mrs. Dyer was holding out. Mendoza nodded. Well, I said, Gray figured he and Pamela Dyer couldn't afford to hold out against you, so he went to see her himself. That's when she told him. That's when she told him she was keeping the big diamond. Gray must have gone berserk. He knew you wouldn't stand for it. He strangled her and took what was left of the pendant with him as a peace offering. He put Mrs. Dyer's body in my car because he wanted to frame me for the job, or he figured I would get rid of the body, just like I did. There was only one problem. The maid at Mrs. Dyer's house saw the whole thing before she went home last night. That, or Gray thought she did. He went over to her house this afternoon to talk to her about it, but I showed up while he was there. He panicked again. After I left, he smashed the maid's skull with the rolling pin she'd been using in the kitchen. When I bumbled in a final time, he was forced to take a swing at me, too. With me lying on the floor next to the body, he called the police and left in a hurry. I addressed Gray. I bet you were pretty surprised when I showed up at your office right on your heels. Things happened. Gray yelled something I didn't understand and dove at me on the couch. Eddie tried to block him, but the fat man's momentum was too much for Eddie. They both hit the couch, one on top of the other. I crawled over to them and made a play for Eddie's gun. This time I got hold of it. Mendoza made a move with his hand towards his jacket. Too bad for him. The gun jolted in my hand and three slugs found their way into his gut. Mendoza dropped to the floor, his skull making a sickening thud as it hit. I giggled. Eddie and Gray hesitated for a moment, and then reached to restrain me. Too bad for them. I worked to the trigger quickly. Two bullets slammed into Eddie's red face. The blood splattered on my arms and the couch. I turned the gun on Gray and fired. He slumped on top of my legs, dead. 
I giggled some more. I threw Gray's body off me and stood up. Blood was everywhere in the dark room. I looked down at the bodies and leered obscenely. I wasn't human. My head was reeling, and I began to feel very, very sick. I went to the toilet and threw up. I phoned the police then. The police really put me through the works. They didn't like the dead bodies on the apartment floor. They didn't like the missing diamond, which they never found. They didn't like me running from the maid's house. They didn't like the way I moved Pamela Dyer's body. Most of all, they didn't like me. I didn't blame them. I was released after a 72-hour confinement on suspicion of murder because of lack of evidence. I quit then. I gave up. I stopped trying to be the clever private detective with all the witty chatter. I had had enough of the mindless killing, the low-class punks and the high-class chiselers I had to deal with, and the general feeling of cheapness. I was tired of being everyone's lackey. Give it to Reardon, he can take it. He loves being smacked in the head or punched around. Go ahead, hit him some more. He's tough. Yeah, he's tough. But not tough enough. Delbert was horrified with the way things turned out. He couldn't accept the fact that I had killed three people. When I told him I was quitting, he offered me a job selling insurance with his company. I thanked him, but I wasn't ready to go that far in the other direction. I saw Lynn Merrow a couple of times more, but her attraction to me wore off when she finally realized I was never going to work as a private detective again. It wasn't my fault. I had warned her once, once when I didn't realize how right I was. There's no such thing as private eyes. Uh, so joining me is Mr. Mark Coggins. Mark is the author of the August Reardon series, uh, The Immortal Game, Vulture Capital, Candy from Strangers, Runoff, and The Big Wake Up, uh, as well as the short story, There's No Such Thing as Private Eyes, which uh, we've just recently heard here on Nil Desperanda. Mark, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. I certainly appreciate it. If I can uh, take a moment and get my, uh, get my fanboy moment out, I love your work. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. I, I really appreciate that. There's not that many people that all <laughs> to own up to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of August Reardon and the uh, the August Reardon novels, so it's uh, quite a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Well, thank you. So, if if I can start out with your your short story, there's no such thing as private eyes. This is the first appearance of 
August Reardon. This is kind of the prequel to the novels. That's right. Uh, I wrote it in college, actually, way back in, I think, 1978, and uh, actually created the character back then, and he's been uh, sort of providing my uh, fictional livelihood ever since. I'm a little curious about that, because the at least in, in the title, I mean, there's no such thing as private eyes, and that's you know, kind of the, the big iconic statement he makes at the end of the story, well, there's no such thing as private eyes, really seems to me kind of a take on the way I view August Reardon as a character. He he really reminds me of you know a, a Sam Spade or a Philip Marlowe or these great noir detectives, but not so much you know reimagined for modern day, but just kind of lifted a whole cloth out of the late 40s and dropped down today. And here's this you know, here's this guy who should have been, you know, in Los Angeles or San Francisco 50 years ago. Was that intentional or? Yeah, it was. I think that's a very good question. Uh, and in fact, when I wrote the story, I had no idea, of course, that I was going to be writing uh, five novels based on the character. Uh, I was more just sort of paying homage to, as you're suggesting, Raymond Chandler and, and Dashiell Hammett. And um, I... You know, I was very enamored with the writing of Hammett and Chandler and and, uh, you know, really wanted to, frankly, you know, continue on in that tradition. Uh, but, you know, I, I realized even when I was writing the story that that there was no way that, a, uh, you know, a character like that could really quite exist in the modern world. So that's how the short story came to be. And then when I did start to write the novels, I decided that. I would run with it, and uh, but I would I would go out of my way to put him in situations where uh, he would have to confront the fact that he was such a a luddite in a lot of ways compared to you know the characters he interacts with, and so his sidekick is a gay man who's who cross dresses, who's an expert in technology, and. So he's exactly all the things that Reardon isn't, and I just wanted to sort of push those two worlds together and, and kind of see how they interacted. A lot of times with modern crime fiction, any time that the you know the, this the sort of private eye noir motif is touched on, uh, it often kind of either at least my perspective it often falls into you know either the realm of parody or pastiche and i don't really see that with uh, with your work and with the character of august reardon as well it, it seems it seems a very kind of honest attempt to say you know this is you know if philip marlowe were alive today instead of 50 years ago this is who he would be well that's really kind of you to say because you know that's exactly you know what i'm trying to aim for um you know there's uh there's all sorts of parodies of Raymond Chandler and, and Hammett. Uh, you know, Woody Allen wrote a couple of great short stories, which you know just perfectly nail in a humorous way the the style. And and you're right, it's walking a fine line. It's it's hard to sort of evoke all the similes and the metaphors without, as you say, seeming to be a pastiche or something like that. So. Uh, it is kind of a challenge, and I, I think the way that I try to do it is I, I do, I mean, all the similes and things that he says and all the the way that he interacts with the world is, you know, is reflecting his experience in the modern world. He's not within limits. He's not cutting out, uh, you know, new experiences and things like that. So uh, for the most part, I'm trying to have him live in the 21st century, but still have a sensibility that's... Um, 
more like what some of those other heroes from uh, earlier noir fiction or earlier detective fiction would have had. So August Rudin then, then comes in to the novels, which is where he really exists, at least in my mind. With the novels, The Immortal Game, Vulture Capital, Candy from Strangers, Runoff, and The Big Wake Up, which are, which are all wonderful. But I do have to ask you one thing, because it seems to me that, there's, that there was one kind of excerpt there that almost struck a little bit of a dissonant chord, but I think you handled it pretty well, but it was still a little odd, and that's Vulture Capital. Specifically, the um, the almost science fiction esque, the neurostimics technology, the the almost uh, James Bond villain lair with all the you know the big underground lair with all the all the workers, because I I read your novels in order, you know as as any good fan would do of course, and so I was I was a little concerned, <laughs> quite frankly, as I was going through Vulture Capital, thinking, well wait a second, you know th- this is it's a wonderful look at you know, that kind of late 90s Silicon Valley venture capital, because I, I was right there chasing after, you know, chasing after my own share of uh, share of capital, but I, I was a little concerned as to where the series was going after that novel, and was glad to see that it really didn't head down that road. No, that's, uh, that's a fair question, and actually a perceptive question. Vulture Capital is sort of a, a path not taken, or an appendix that you know, a vestigial appendix from another uh, possible, uh, you know, alternative fictional universe. So what happened was um, I wrote uh, The Immortal Game. Uh, I took a year off from work and worked on it. I had I'd written, uh, you know, the, the short story and uh, it eventually got published in um, a revival of the Black Mask magazine, which was where Hammond and, and Chandler got their start. So that was a big thrill. I actually got published in the same place the first time that those two got published the first time. Uh, and then I had submitted a short story version of The Immortal Game to the magazine, and unfortunately it folded before they were able to publish it. So I threw that story, which was quite long, into a drawer, and it sat there for, oh, 10 or 12 years. And then I said, well, hey, you know, I'm going to pull this out and, and write a novel based on this story. So I expanded it, I twisted it, and I, you know, changed it enough to have the dramatic flow and arc of a novel. And... Um, went out and shopped for an agent and I started with the A's in the agent book and I landed one who whose name started with an A and I thought okay I'm launched and so she then shopped it in New York and um, she shared with me all the letters she got back and they were all very nice what they all said was you know 10 years ago we would have bought this book uh, really enjoyed it but you know there's just not private eye fiction just isn't that popular right now I'm sorry we're going to pass and repeatedly, you know, bing, bing, bing. And I, I looked back at those letters not too long ago, and there's some very famous editors who rejected me back then, but um, who were just getting started. But um, so I was kind of discouraged, and I put the novel back in a drawer, and I said, okay, you know, private eye fiction isn't the thing to write. I'm going to write a thriller set in Silicon Valley, which has to do with venture capital, and uh, which I, I had worked for a venture capital company. And you're right, you know, of course, what I was also trying to do was sort of convey that weird world in the, at the uh, end of the 90s when, you know, all these crazy startups were happening. And I was a co-founder of a startup during that time, so I sort of had a feel for that. Uh, and so I wrote that book. 
And in the meantime, um, I got a small publisher to bite on the Immortal game, and it got published. And I did—I frankly didn't have that much expectation for it. It was a very small publisher, uh, but for some reason, the San Francisco Chronicle took pity on me, and they did a review, and they gave it a great review. And all these crazy things started happening. It got a review on NPR. It got picked for a number of um, best of the year lists. It was uh, nominated for some awards. And so all of a sudden I had all this attention about a character that I'd included in the second book just because I liked the character, but didn't ever expect him necessarily to be able to, you know, be where I was uh, doing most of my writing. So at that point, you know, I probably made a wrong decision. I could have shelved Vulture Capital, which was done at that point and gone on with, uh, a new book for Reardon, but I, I decided that I thought, and the publisher I was working with also agreed that we should go with Vulture Capital. So I'm proud of the book, but I don't, it's interesting. The people who like that book don't necessarily like the other books and the people that like the other books don't necessarily like it. So it's, it is sort of an odd thing. Reardon is more of a character in that book rather than, uh, the protagonist. He certainly doesn't drive the story as much as he does in as you say, basically all the rest of them. Yes, but there's one interesting thing about that book that most people don't know. If you ever get hold of a first edition of it and you peel off the dust jacket and you look on the uh, the boards, there's a glass key embedded on the board. And that book is actually a homage to Dashiell Hammett's The Glass Key. And it, it's not really a homage in the sense that the plot is the same or anything like that, but it's written in this odd sort of third-person objective style that The Glass Key is written in. And the main character of The Glass Key, I don't know if you read it, is a guy named Ned Beaumont. And the main character in Vulture Capital is Ted Valmont. And there are some similarities slight similarities in some of the plot points they hit. But as I said, it's really not the same sort of thing, obviously, since The Glass Key was written in the 30s. But the whole point was it was an exercise in voice and uh, point of view, um, sort of as a homage to Hammett. So there is some detective fiction, if you will, heritage in the book, even if it doesn't, if you're right, it is more science fiction-y than, than anything else I've written. If we then jump forward, the last, or the most recent uh, Reardon novel is The Big Wake Up, which, to my mind, is is the best of the five. It's just an amazing story. How did you come up with the idea to you know, include the hunt for Evita's corpse, basically, in in one of your stories? I mean, that's that's not really something that's, at least as far as I know, is not really in the modern American public mind that much. Well, thank you for. Uh your assessment of the book. I, I agree with you. I, you know, I've always, I mean, always, I haven't, it's only been out for a couple of years, but I felt that I definitely wrote the best book I could when I wrote that book. And I sort of see in a way, uh, Avita's corpse is sort of like, uh, the MacGuffin or the, the, the same kind of thing that the, the Maltese Falcon is in the Maltese Falcon. It's the thing that everybody, all the characters are chasing after. So, um, you know, you could sort of just abstract that out and, and not be concerned about that, uh, directly. But to answer your question, uh, literally, I, it was kind of a coincidence. I, um, my wife and I decided that we would take Christmas vacation in Buenos Aires. And so we'd never been to Argentina. We flew down and we arrived on, literally on Christmas Eve. So we had uh, a nice dinner. And of course, we were way jet lagged. And the next morning 
on Christmas Day, uh, I wanted to get up and do things, and my wife wasn't quite so eager because she was still uh, jet-lagged and, and, if the truth be known, slightly hungover from dinner. So I had booked this tour to see the only thing you could see on Christmas Day in Argentina, which is a cemetery, which is La Ricoleta, which is a famous cemetery in Buenos Aires where Avita Peron supposedly <laughs> is buried. And uh, the tour guide was a guy from the U.S., a guy from Georgia, actually, who spoke fluent Spanish and had decided to move down there. He's actually a, a travel writer for Rick Steves. His name is Robert Wright. And he uh, took a tour of probably, you know, maybe 10 other folks, including myself, all Americans, on this great tour of the cemetery. It's sort of like, a, it's like a small city. And in, in that cemetery, all the, the crypts and things are very large. They're like apartment buildings in a lot of ways. There's multiple levels and you know, different generations live on different levels. And we went around and he told stories about all sorts of different people from Argentina, not just Avita, but all sorts of people. And when he got to Avita Peron and his grave and he, he told all this incredible background, I had no idea about how after she died, all these things happened to her. And so that was just you know, a revelation. I, I didn't realize that, you know, this had actually happened. And, uh, I went back home and I found another book, um, uh, that, that, uh, an Argentinian wrote that talked about in more detail about all the crazy things that happened, all of which are real. A lot of people read the book and they think, oh, this is, you know, this is crazy. This is too pulpy. You know, he made up all this stuff. And, you know, most of the stuff about Avita's journey, if you will, is all true. Uh, and, and that was uh, just a great inspiration. And so, um, yeah, and, and that book is a lot different than all the others. If you, I'm sure you realize all the others have some kind of technology hook because I work in the Silicon Valley. So this one doesn't, uh, I just decided to abandon that and go with something that I thought was sort of very bizarre, but it's also very interesting in a lot of ways. Certainly as far as I'm concerned, it's the best of the five, but it's also a very dark novel. It seems much darker than the other ones. And it, it really seems to end with even more so none of the Reardon novels does Reardon really come off or really really end up as you know, he he doesn't get the girl, he doesn't ride off into the sunset, but even more so than the rest of them, it seems to leave him in kind of a dark place by the end of the book. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. That was the intention. I I, I mean I didn't well let me put it this way. That was where I ended up after I wrote the book. I'm not sure I set out to write the book that way, but I think you're right. He has come to a place that, you know, I'm not sure he's really going to get out of, and I'm not sure there will be another written book. I'm thinking about it, but I'm not sure there will be. There's a couple other sort of layers in there uh, that I think are sort of interesting, or at least in my opinion, they are. I, one is I liked... I enjoyed bringing back the character of Stockwell, who's been in several of the other books. And he and Reardon have butted heads. And in the end, Stockwell is kind of a partner in a way that his other sidekick couldn't be in, in helping him in a time when Reardon was really in the hole. And so that, that I enjoyed sort of having that come back. Another thing that uh, I think most people probably won't get, and I'll get sued by the Chandler estate, but if you... If you do uh, a little research on the background of, say, if you reread Farewell, My Lovely and look into the character of Anne Reardon, uh, there may be something you might guess about the heritage of, of Reardon <laughs> as a result of, uh, 
as a result of doing that. Sounds like you might have gotten the inside joke. But... I see, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure I had actually put those together, but I uh, can see where you're going with that. Um, so that was going to be my next question. So you, At the moment, you don't have any plans for a sixth Reardon novel? I have a plot in mind. I have him, as you know, he goes back to Palm Springs to, at the end of the book, well, yes, at the end of the of, of the last book, he goes back to Palm Springs. He buries, he, he visits the grave of his father and he buries some folks near his father. And uh, at, the plot I have in mind is he's, left San Francisco, and he's moved to Palm Springs. He's retired from private investigations. He's living in a trailer, you know, in a complex there, and somebody from his past shows up. But um, uh, And I think that's about all I would say at this point. So I have, a, I have it in mind, but he's definitely a different Reardon than he used to be. So uh, I think he's, he was definitely changed by this last book in, in significant ways. As as a reader, I, th- I would think it would be a little disingenuous if he he shows up at the beginning of Reardon number six and he's the you know the same kind of happy go lucky devil may care we saw back in the Immortal Game. I think you're right. If I can switch gears a little bit, you have to bring this up. You also wrote uh, the Adventure of the Black Bishop. Yes. Well, so that <laughs> you're just how, gonna lay it out there. <laughs> how how does one? I almost want to use the word hubris here. How does one decide? How does one wake up one day and say, "I'm going to write a Sherlock Holmes story"? Well, you know, I, I think, uh, and this is not necessarily a good thing. Um, I think what what I've discovered about myself in terms of my writing ability is, I'm pretty good at imitating other people's styles. And so, you know, you could say that the Immortal Game, for instance, in particular, the first Rudin book is, you know, a lot like a Raymond Chandler book. And of course, as I said, Vulture Capital was a homage to Hammett. A lot of people really don't talk about being influenced by Hammett, but very few people really write like Hammett. It's it's a very hard thing to do. I had written, I, had, I should say, I'd started to write a Sherlock Holmes story back in the 80s, uh, after um, the uh, Masterpiece, well, it's not the Masterpiece Theater, but uh, BBC and um, uh, PBS had the Jeremy Brett uh, Sherlock Holmes, who I think is the best Sherlock Holmes I've seen you know, on film or, or tape. And so I, I was, you know, I've always enjoyed Sherlock Holmes, and uh, I thought, you know, I would try to write a Sherlock Holmes story. And frankly, I got maybe 10 pages into it, and I found it, it's very taxing to hold that voice and to be, you know, you have to do a lot of research to be, you know, within, you know, 10 miles of accurate about Victorian England and things like that. So I threw it in a drawer again and didn't really think much about it. But I got asked by a, um, a publisher that specializes in chess uh, literature, not chess fiction, but chess nonfiction. And they were doing uh, an anthology of short stories around chess fiction to, to, for uh, charity. And the, the proceeds were going to go to um, chess clubs and other organizations that were helping young people learn about chess. So I didn't really, and the reason they asked me was because, of course, the Mortal Game has a basis in chess, uh, chess software in particular. And so I'm kind of known as somebody who writes about chess, even though I'm not, I'm a terrible player and I don't really know that much about it. 
So I thought, well, I, I, I want to do the right thing here. I wasn't getting paid for this, by the way, but I want to do the right thing. So I'd like to write this story. Uh, what can I do? So I thought, well, I've got this old Sherlock Holmes story, and you know, I could see Sherlock playing chess. So I pulled it out, and frankly, it wasn't going to be at all about chess when I started it in the 1980s, but I um, figured I could change it into that, and so I did. And um, it, it was in the anthology, and there was a number of uh, very well-regarded writers, including uh, Stephen Carter, who wrote, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, he's a Yale professor, a law professor, and it was a very well re Ocean Park or something like that. It was about chess, and... Uh, some other well-regarded writers. And fortunately, the book didn't get that much attention. I don't think it really made that much money for the publisher or for the charity. But, uh, you know, I was free to do what I wanted with a uh, story after that. So I threw it up on Amazon. And surprisingly, it's a sort of a, a, a strange thing about Kindle and eBooks. It sells about 150 copies a month. And my other books probably sell no more than 10 copies at most Per, per per book. So something about that thing has really struck a chord with people, uh, whereas, you know, unfortunately, my original work <laughs> hasn't done as well. So what's next for Mark Coggins? You have, um, uh, at least according to your website, uh, Prom Night and Other Man-Made Disasters, which is coming soon, whatever that means. Yeah, that's right. I have, I, I spent the last uh, year and a half working on a collection of nonfiction essays. They're sort of first-person. It's sort of meant to be like what David Sedaris does, but, of course, it'll never be as good as what he does or, or as funny. But, um, you know, that was kind of the motivation behind it. So I've, I've, I've published a few of these by themselves on Huffington Post or the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, and so I'm kind of pulling them all together in a collection, and I'm going to put that out. And, you know, frankly, this is just a self-published operation, if you will. Uh, I'm not, I didn't even try to shop it with a publisher. It's just something I'm doing on my own. When do you expect that will be available? I think uh, mid-April is what uh, what we're shooting for. I had um, it professionally edited by... Uh, uh, well-regarded New York editor who just had completed uh, the latest Tom Clancy book, so I was very honored to be, <laughs> to be following Tom Clancy. Nice. And, and um, yeah, so it should be out uh, on ebook and uh, available as a trade paperback as well in uh, the April time frame. Okay. Anything else we can look forward to? Well, as I said, I'm thinking about next steps with Reardon, so we'll we'll see what happens there. Okay. But uh, too early to say yet. <laughs> well, we definitely look forward to uh, whatever it is that's coming next. Well, thanks, Jim, and I really appreciate uh, your comments about the Reardon books and uh, especially the recognition of the last one being the best because I, I do agree with you about that. <laughs> well, well, thank you once again for joining me. People can find you on the web, of course, at uh, markcoggins.com, I believe it is. That's right. And you are also on Goodreads, of course. Indeed. Anywhere else that... Uh... I'm on Twitter. I'm not a very good tweeter, I'm afraid. And you're welcome to friend me on Facebook or uh, Google+. Okay, excellent. I shall be doing all of those things. <laughs> uh, very hopefully good. our listeners will run out and uh, make their way through the Reardon novels if they haven't already and follow along for your next work. So, Mark, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you again. Special thanks to Mark Coggins for letting us run that story and for 
sitting for the interview. Really appreciate that. Mild Esperandum, of course, is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it all you want. Just don't change it or charge for it. Mild Esperandum is entirely listener-supported. We cannot continue to do this without your assistance. Please visit ndstories.com to leave a comment and make a donation. Every penny goes to pay our authors, and every penny helps. Until next time, my friends, take care and have a good week.